Now, this is the Sunday that all over the country, churches are turning in their Bibles on a special holiday to that same passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul says, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And he goes on to say, what you were given, stir it up, put it into use. But he, he points to a godly heritage that Timothy had, and many of you can thank the Lord for that this morning, from mom, from grandma. And it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always ideal, certainly. I can look back, and, and as a kid, you don't even realize all that it took and how hard it was. You can, easy, you can easily think back of the mistakes that mom might have made, but no idea of what it cost her. And I only realized that later. Um, for many of us, that life and experience wasn't all that it should have been. On a day like Mother's Day, you also, you also realize there have been mothers that have endured uh, great loss. And there are those that long to be mothers and are not yet. There's a lot of mixed emotions in a special holiday like that. And uh, yet within the church family... Paul also, when he writes to the Thessalonians, he compares his own ministry to that of a nurturing mother who would give his own life for them because he longed for them. And you understand in ideal situations, you understand the kind of sacrifice that he's paralleling to. And one of the things we get out of that is within a church family, there should be mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandmothers and brothers and sisters that do care for one another. And we are that family for one another, and we are that family to others. So when we celebrate a day like Mother's Day, and I hope your celebrations are going to be sweet and wonderful, and yet let's remember that that, that holiday connects to a longing that you could also be a part of in the life of, of someone else. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you have given many of us in terms of the heritage of a mother or a grandmother. Father, thank you for those moms and grandmas in this room and what they are in the heritage of their own family. And Lord, for others, that there's some pain associated with Mother's Day. There's some loss or some longing there. Father, we pray that you yourself, would, as the merciful God, would, would comfort those hearts. And Father, you would help us to learn something from what we know that should be. What a holiday like Mother's, Mother's Day is meant to connect with in our hearts. Father, that some of that that we would be for one another and for others by the grace of Jesus through us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we turn to John chapter 2, as Jim pointed out, it's, it's kind of a, a strange story to start the gospel of John with. A little strange in that sense. Um, but fortunately, there's a mother's connection. 
in John chapter 2. So we've got a Mother's Day text to work with. So that keeps me out of trouble. I'm excited about that. In John chapter 2, there's two episodes. And, in the, and the two episodes both point to what we do or don't want, expect God to do. In our study in the Gospel of John, we are wanting to know God. That's why we're going through. In Jesus, we can know the Father. Jesus came to show us the Father. So as we step into John chapter 2, as we get into the midst of a wedding, as we join Jesus, as he clears the temple, because his priority is worship. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in that second episode. Uh, we're going to focus mainly in the, in, the, in the first one. So let me jump to the second one first just to say this. You see in John's record of this, this seems to be an early clearing of the temple. It is not the same as the other synoptic gospels have later, but his, the zeal for his father's house, the zeal for people to have access to the worship of God, that zeal consumes him, it says. And that means he's really excited about it. That means that it consumes and will consume his life. Our Lord will lay down his life so that what was in the way is cleared out of the way so that you and I can worship. So even as now, as we turn into God's word, we want to just pause and clear our hearts, move anything else out of the way, that we would not only hear from him, but that we would see him. Father, would you do that? Open our hearts. Lord, move obstacles that might be hindrances to worship. Maybe it's distraction. Maybe it's things that we've built up. Maybe it's things that we've arranged and organized or have planned for the day. But Lord, would you push those things aside right now? Speak to us. Show us yourself from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. I invite you to turn to, in your Bibles to John chapter 2. You should find us on page 887 if you're using the church Bible in front of you. 887, John chapter 2. Like I said, it's an unusual story. We're going to see that, that, that God sometimes unexpectedly provides. That we can actually experience already today what we don't have a claim to yet. We can experience a foretaste of God's future. That we can, as I told the kids, we can ask him for what we need. We can do what he says. And, and, and in doing what he says, as we ask him for what he needs, sometimes that which is needed actually flows through us. But let's turn to John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. John chapter 2. In the final day, I'm sorry, on the third day, and this is the third day after the last episode. So Jesus and his disciples, they had gone up to Galilee. He'd gathered a couple more. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding along with his disciples, or those that he has gathered so far. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And the master of the feast, the wedding planner, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the women, or or, or rather when the people have drunk freely, and they can't really tell the difference, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You saved the best for last. And this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's an interesting story. At the service, we can at least say this. Jesus, as Lord of creation, he, can, he controls all of the bi- biological processes and the organic processes. He's able to take that which takes months and months and maybe a couple of years and condense that down into an instant. He is the Lord of creation. Certainly we see that. But there's a lot of strange dialogue in here that has to mean more than that. So there they are at a wedding. And the presenting problem is it's a wedding that runs out of wine. Apparently, it's not a Baptist wedding. You notice Jesus and his mother were there, but John the Baptist was not. I don't know what that means. No, there's probably something more significant than that. Mary seems to be in charge of the food. We don't know why. Maybe she's connected to the groom's family because that's the groom's family's responsibility. Maybe the father of the, of the groom is her brother. We don't know what the connection would be here. It's, you can could, you could imagine all kinds of scenarios. But she seems to be in charge of the kitchen. She's not just a guest at this wedding because a guest at the wedding does not order the servants around. It's not a guest at the wedding's responsibility to solve the problem. They've ran out of beverages. Okay, so Mary seems to be in charge in some way. Now, it's culturally embarrassing for the groom's family to not be able to provide for what is needed. If the food runs out or the beverages run out, the wine runs out, that's a problem. The band stops playing. That's a problem. The groom's family is supposed to keep all of this together. So there's some weddings coming this summer. Now we've switched things around. Now it's the bride's family that's got to keep all that organized, right? Don't let us down. It's embarrassing. Now, when this happens, they run out of wine. They've got these pots over there. There's some purification pots, and there's, some, there's water that could be served. But apparently, water would fall short here. Now you go to the restaurant and you said, no, I'll just have a water, please. You don't want to pay $4 for a Coke. I'll just have a water, please. That, that's good. That works for lunch, but that doesn't work in a celebration like this. And this is purification water. This is special water. You don't drink this water. It'd be scandalous to drink this water. Think of those kind of churches where you, you um, have some holy water. You know, when you come in, there's holy water there. Can you imagine pulling out a little Dixie cup and dipping that in there? And have, it's a hot day! That would be weird. And that would probably get you in a whole lot of trouble, right? That is not what this water was for. So they would have a cistern that would collect rainwater from off of the roofs through a gutter system that would collect the rainwater specifically for purification. You used clean water for this. 
And uh, so Jesus says, first from the cistern, draw up some water in order to fill those pots. But that's just water. That's purification water. That's what the law can give, and that's not going to meet the needs of this feast. Now and again through the Gospel of John, you're going to find these little things where the law is there, but it's not enough. Oh, we like law. We like rules. We like structures. We want to say, we'll just do this and this and this, and God will be pleased. Moses couldn't bring Israel into the promised land. The law cannot provide what the human heart longs for. You see, there's something about this wedding feast that is much, much bigger than a social event on the calendar. This wedding feast, Jesus, a couple of times, uses a wedding feast, a marriage feast, as a parable of the kingdom. All of the joy of human relationship and celebration and coming together. Everything that all the problems for this week are put aside. Nothing is remembered. No matter what has gone before, no matter what's going to come after, for this week, life is wonderful. It's just as it's supposed to be. And it's, a, it's just a little taste of if humanity could be fully restored into how life is supposed to be. Just for this festival. And right in the middle of it, it's like the turntable suddenly grinds to a halt and the music stops. And they've run out of wine. And Moses, and the purity laws, and the water pots can't do anything about it themselves. Moses can prescribe purity, but Moses cannot throw a party. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. Well, it's a good thing that Jesus is there. They've run out of wine, and just as the wedding feast is emblematic of everything as it ought to be in God's kingdom, and Jesus uses that in his parables, so the wine points to the kingdom era. When life in blessed abundance is all that it should be. Now, you didn't know that. You didn't know that that was what wine actually typified in the Old Testament. In that wonderful New Covenant chapter, Jeremiah 31, in verse 12, it says this. They shall come and sing aloud on the hills of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord and his abundance, over the grain and the wine and the olive and the young of the flock and the herd. The, 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 the flocks and herds are prosperous as well. And their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Too much of life, as it is right now in this broken world, in the midst of broken relationships, is languishing under the curse. But there comes a day when they will languish no more. Amos puts it this way. Amos closes his prophetic book with these lines. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all of the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. What a wonderful time that will be when each one dwells under his own vine, and each one sits under his own fig tree. It's going to be a wonderful time. And it's not just that God likes fig trees and, 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 and vines and wine. That's not the point. But in Israel's agricultural economy and their lifestyle, those, that was emblematic of the best of life as it's supposed to be. 
Not everybody angry at each other, fighting and, and carrying on and divided. No, coming together in a wedding festival. But we've run out of wine. We can't provide what is needed to pull it off. Jesus as Messiah will. All that life ought to be, all that you long for, Jesus will bring the blessedness in life of joyous relationship that humanity longs for. That's what Messiah will bring in his kingdom. That's why we pray, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I got it backwards there, didn't I? It's okay. We long for that because we're not there yet. We're not home yet. But that's what Messiah will bring. And so his mother comes to him and says, this is a tragedy. They've run out of wine. And don't you love Jesus' response? You know that Mary wants him to do something about it by bringing it up. She's not just informing him. She's expecting that he could do something about this. But you catch his response? Now, Mother's Day, just a... Helpful advice here. I know the, most of the kids have, have gone. There's, there's teens left, and, and uh, those of you who are adults and you still have your mom, if mom points out a need, do not respond like Jesus did. Okay, Jesus says, woman, woman, what does that have to do with me? You know? Your mom says, hey, I noticed the garbage is kind of full. Woman, what does that have to do with me? It's not going to go over real well. Later on today, okay, the steaks are there. They're ready to put on the grill. Woman, what does that have to? That's, that's, that's not the right. Now, that, it seems like Jesus is being kind of harsh here. He's not. There is, there is a difference in relationship now. Jesus is Messiah. There's a different relationship between his mother, who is a woman, yes, she is, but to him now she is that. She is not elevated above him as his mother in the same way, even in another man, man and mother relationship. It's more than just he's grown up now. It's more than that. In traditions in the church, came out, it comes out of the medieval church, in the Byzantine church even, they exalted Mary as the mother of God to the point that all the images show Mary almost glorified and Jesus as a help, helpless infant in her arms. That is not the image of John chapter 2. Jesus is in charge, and now Mary almost ceases in his thinking to be mother and is a woman representing humanity from which he has come. Yes, but he is the Son of God. And he doesn't get that from Mary. So there's a, there's a difference there, but, he, but he's not being rude. He's not being off-putting. He says later on the cross, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. And to John, behold your mother. So he's not, he's not being disrespectful. He's not being harsh at all. But there is a difference that is occurring here. He responds in a way that declares some difference. Now, what does that phrase mean? What does this have to do with me? Or actually, we would more freely translate it, what to you, to me? What do you have to do with me? Is, is kind of what he's saying, which again seems very strange to say to your mother. Don't try this at home. But it's a Hebrew phrase that everywhere else in the New Testament and the Old Testament, everywhere else it's used, it's used to make the statement, you don't have 
a legitimate claim to ask that of me. Or you do not have a legitimate dispute or complaint against me. It's always used in those two ways, so it must be used. It's a Hebrew, it's what's called an idiom. It's, it's a phrase that means that, and it's used that way here. He's telling his mother that, it's, that, that she doesn't have any claim on him to provide the wine for the wedding. Why? Because his time has not yet come. Now we've got to unpack that phrase. His time has not yet come. Time for what? Time for wine, more wine at the wedding? No. The time has not yet come. He's going to use that phrase a couple of times more in the Gospel of John when they go to arrest him and they're trying to seize him, but they cannot yet arrest him because his time had not yet come. But halfway through John chapter 12, things change. And now he's been rejected by the leadership and non-Jewish people are asking for him and he says, now the time has come. Now Now is the time for the Son of Man to be lifted up. In John chapter 13, he, he says the hour has come to depart out of this world. In John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer to his father begins this way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane just before his crucifixion, he prays this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour is the time of his laying down his life for us so that our relationship with God can be restored. So that which is in the way can be moved out of the way. Our sin, our guilt, our rebellion can be dealt with so that we can be reconciled to God. We can be restored to him. What Peter in Acts chapter 2 calls the restoration of all things, that his kingdom may come. All the blessing and joy of fruitfulness with God in his garden can be returned. That's what's aimed at here. And that hour has not yet come. She has no right to ask him for the wine at the wedding because it's not yet time for the hills to be flowing with wine. That is the time of his kingdom, and that time has not yet come. The best will come last. First He must lay down his life. First the hour comes for him to give himself, and then, then will come all the joy of restoration in the Father's kingdom that you and I long for. He cannot yet truly provide their need for happiness, for joy, for restoration, as things should be. And yet, to end there would be kind of a hopeless note, wouldn't it? But the story doesn't end there. And Mary suspects that the story doesn't end there. She has no more argument with him. She has no claim upon him. That has been established. His hour has not yet come. And yet she says, well, whatever he says, do it. And then Jesus gives instructions to the servants. Fill those water pots, those limestone vessels that cannot be defiled because they're limestone and not made out of clay. And fill those with wine. They fill them all the way to the brim. Twenty to 30 gallons each, and there are six of them. I did the math. That's 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot of water. That's even more wine. That's a lot of wine. I don't know how many people are at this wedding, but the wedding has gone on a bit already, 
that is 180 gallons. That's a lot of wine boxes from Wingo, huh? That is a lot of wine. All right. So they convert it. The master of the ceremony doesn't he does, Nobody knows Jesus has done this behind the scene. The, he, he, the master of the, of the ceremonies, the, the, the wedding planner, uh, comes to the groom and says, I'm confused. Normally you put the best wine up front. You say this is better than anything. This is nothing like what the groom's family was able to provide. You have saved the best for last. There's a theological point there as well. But the thing that happens here is that even though it's not yet time for the kingdom, as hour has not yet come, still our Lord graciously grants a foretaste of his coming glory. Our Lord graciously gives, meets needs that we don't have any claim on. That's what's going on in the story. Is ours not yet come? She doesn't have any claim upon him, and yet he does it. And he doesn't do it to draw attention to himself. He's not yet trying to make a big splash. He's not trying to get it. He doesn't step up. Okay, hey, everybody, I hear we're out of wine. I th- I'm going to do something about that. Okay, watch this. We're going to fill those pots. Now, take some of that to the- check out this wine. Look, it's a miracle, and everybody is in awe. That's how I would do it. I would want the attention. Jesus doesn't do it that way at all. Behind the scenes, in humility, in fact, that's where he's glorified in the story. One of the ways that we see his glory is we see his glory in his humility, not jumping up front. He doesn't want the attention. He's not doing it for the acclaim. He's not doing it to demonstrate far and wide publicly to everybody that he is the Messiah. He's doing it because they're longing for what one day will be, but is not yet. And he graciously gives them a taste of it for now, simply because he can. That is our God. Our God graciously grants to us that which we have no rightful claim upon him to ask for. Did you get that? Because that flies right in the face of two incorrect perspectives that we have toward God and what he would do for us. The first is what I call the low expectations approach, that we don't expect much because we don't deserve much. We're right about that we don't deserve much, but because we don't deserve much and we connect the our deserving to God giving, because we don't deserve much, we think he will not give much. And that's wrong. So we hesitate to ask because we don't expect, why would God be bothered with me? Who am I that I could ask God? Believing in Jesus, you are God's own child. As many as received him to them, gave he the right to become the children of God. You have every right as his own child to come to your father. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And he loves for us to ask. He delights to surprise his children in what he does for them. The fact that God graciously gives to us or for us that which we have no rightful claim on him for, that is his grace. It should not cause us to hesitate to ask. 
it should, it should ca- that would cause us to joyfully, confidently, and hopefully ask. Leaving the answer to him because we trust him, not because we doubt him. The other, the other false assumption is this idea of I have a claim on God. Because God has saved me, it's part of the covenant. Everything I ask for, everything I claim, God has to do it. And that forgets the gracious side of it. That forgets the I have no claim on side of it. You see, our God graciously gives to us, graciously blesses, graciously does for us that which we have no claim on him for. And so we ask not in our own standing. We ask in Jesus' name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Knowing God graciously meets needs that we don't have a claim on him to meet, We don't have any expectation. We then can follow Mary's example of faith. We ask him for grace. And that might be to heal. That might be to provide. That might be, God, give me me your strength in this situation. We ask God for his strength and we do what he says. Remember Mary's words to the servant. Whatever he says, do it. That seems to be a problem. For his children. This seems to be a problem for servants. That, that Jesus himself will tell his disciples a little bit of frustration one day. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And the reason that's important, not because if you obey, then he will do. That's not the point. She asks. And then she says, whatever he says, do, because those servants and how they follow in what he says is going to make them the channel through whom his blessing flows to others. The whole family, the whole party, the whole celebration is going to be able to continue and come together with that short experience of joyful life together because those servants did what he says. Oftentimes, God's grace will flow through us to others in our obedience to him. Ask him for grace, and then we do what he says, because the channel of God's gracious care often flows through us. I'll give you an example. You're in line at McDonald's. This is kind of a simple and silly one, but you're in line at McDonald's. And behind you, there's a mom. It's Mother's Day. So there's a mom. She's got three kids. She's slightly outnumbered. She has two hands. She has three kids. And you decide, or, you, or the Spirit seems to be pressing on your heart, buy their happy meals. And you say, no, Lord, in those famous words of Peter, no, Lord, it's biblical, right? Peter said that. This is McDonald's. That wouldn't be healthy for them. Really? That's where you're going to go? You're at McDonald's, you just supersized it, and you're worried about their health? No, no, actually, I'm, I'm cheap. That's, that's really the issue. You buy the Happy Meals, and, and she's thanking you, as of course she would, and, and uh, between trying to keep the kids crowded together, and she's, she's thanking you, saying, you know, we've got a great Sunday school, and we've got a, a vacation Bible camp at our church this summer. Love to have your family come. There's this new young families class that started for parents just to get some connection together and some kind of mutual supporting one another, you know, strength in numbers kind of thing. And uh, 
Maybe she'll come. Maybe she won't. You find out, oh, she already has a church she goes to. Man, what a waste. No. You've encouraged her. And you've also shown her something she could do for someone else. That's a win. And maybe... Maybe she doesn't have a church that she goes to. Maybe, maybe she might come here a month, two months, six months from now. Maybe a couple years from now she'll remember that and go to a church somewhere, wherever they are. Because she saw something in Jesus' gracious giving, what we have no claim on him for. She saw something of that in you. And it stuck. It connected with your invitation to her to church. Maybe it's as simple as your neighbor working on something. And you've got a deck chair and a lemonade, and you really don't want to get up. But you go over and help, and you talk. And you're just loving your neighbor as yourself. We do what he says because so often his gracious care of others, which you're right, they don't deserve, even as we don't. And yet often that gracious care flows through you and I. You give what you could spend on yourself. You give it instead. It pays for Awana. It pays for study materials. It pays for Bible training for church pa- pastors all the way around the world in India somewhere. People you don't even know. Because the channel of God's gracious care for others often flows through your and my obedience. So because... Because our God is like this, his children should live in that. His children have the opportunity by his grace, out of his love, to live in that which he is to us. Our God graciously gives that which we have no legitimate claim to because it's of grace. And so we ask for his grace for ourselves, for others. We dare to ask for his grace, and we will do what he says. I'm not sure what he's saying to you this morning. I'm not sure what he'll say through the day. That doing what he says might involve something that you're reading in your quiet time. And, and there there's something in the word that, that re- surfaces, that something in your life doesn't line up with that. And now's the time to do what he says because I want to walk in his grace and I want to be a channel through which his grace flows to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example, this story where Jesus surprises us. He does that which we don't expect. He says things we don't expect only to raise to the surface that in the middle of his abundant provision, it is from your grace. It's not anything that we can claim to. In fact, everything that we can claim in Jesus Christ is because he would humble himself. He would die for us. So, Father, would you help us, Lord, to live in that grace? to dare to ask our loving God for what we need in Jesus. To do what he says that we might be his channel of grace to people around us. Father, would you take even that which we give this morning, would you use it that way as your channel of grace to others? Father, would you 
take even these prayer requests that are now shared in the communication card as those are, are lifted up to you and offered at this time that others might join together in prayer. Father, would this be an offering of faith to you that you would use us in asking for grace for another. Use us as channels of your blessing. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name.